the power of saying no and having faith in the long term, that's so hard to do, especially as you're sort of starting to grow. You're like, oh, my God, that's an incredible opportunity. Will there ever be another one? But if it doesn't feel right, just say no and have faith. Life is both long and short. Hey, everyone. Welcome to No Limits. I'm your host, Rebecca Jarvis. If you're a frequent listener, thank you. Thank you for coming back. Thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing. We really appreciate it. And to anyone who's joining us for the first time, welcome. Each week, we are working here to demystify success. I know it's a big word. Not everyone even agrees that success is what we should all be after, but it's one of those things we talk about in our careers. And I'm talking to the world's most influential women across all different industries to try to get beyond their resumes from the decisions they've made along the way, the trade-offs, the pivotal moments that shape their careers. Whether you're looking for advice or you just want to hear a good story, you've come to the right place. And today's guest is a woman who's written her own rules. Emily Ratajkowski, she's a model, an actress, and an entrepreneur. She hasn't been afraid to speak her mind. She hasn't been afraid to say what she says, even when it might be controversial. She's in movies like Gone Girl and I Feel Pretty. You've definitely seen her on the cover of many magazines. And a little more than two years ago, she launched a clothing brand. She calls it Inamorata. She self-funded the company. She runs it with her best friend, Kat Mendenhall. And something really interesting, they do 96% of their sales from Instagram. Emily can post a new item and it sells out in minutes. I spoke to Emily for a segment on Nightline, which you should check out after you listen to our interview here. Without further ado, this is Emily Ratajkowski. You're an actress. You're a model. You have one of the most popular Instagram accounts in the world. And you own your own company. You created it. That's true. You're not even 30 years old yet. Not yet. What would seven-year-old Emily think of all of this? Uh, I think she'd be pretty bewildered, to be honest. Um, I feel like I always had this image of this, like, cool woman that I would want to be in, um that my seven-year-old self would be happy with with how it's turned out, so. You were born in London. Yes, yeah, I was. Um, I'm American, my parents are both American, but my mom was teaching in London, she's an English professor, so I did, I I don't have an English accent, but I was born there. Did your parents ever say to you, because your dad's a teacher as well, and an artist, Yes. did your parents want you to become a teacher? No, but they definitely wanted me to work in the arts, um, which is sort of how I started acting because, um, you know, I was one of the, I'm an only child. I was one of those kids who was in ballet, piano lessons, um, good parents who like made me try everything, soccer, literally you name it. And I I did it. And um, at a certain point, the acting sort of stuck. But I did go to UCLA for art. So there was a minute where that was maybe going to be my, my path. And you dropped out. I did. I dropped out. College dropout. Was that a hard choice? It was. I think, you know, my mom has her PhD. I come from a family that really values education. And um, it was a very particular time in our country. It was 2009 that I graduated high school. So the economy had just completely flatlined. And I had a lot of older friends who were coming back, moving home. And I was a senior in high school with crazy student loan debt you know, an amazing degree from a fancy school, but living in their parents' basements. And I think that also contributed to my decision because I was majoring in art, um, which isn't, you know, you don't get a guaranteed job out of school. Um, And, you know, at a certain point, I was, I loved UCLA, but um, 
the experiences that I was being offered as a working model and actress were more exciting and sort of more had, had more of a time limit. Were you thinking at that point, maybe I'll come back? Maybe I'd go back yeah, to school? Would you ever go back to school? Oh, maybe. Yeah, I don't see why not. I, I think I UCLA was a little bit of a too big of a school for me. I went to a pretty small, it was a public high school, but it was still a smaller school. And I think that I was never really interested in the sort of like college sorority fraternity life. So maybe I wouldn't go back to school there, but I definitely could see myself doing that one day. Why not? What would you study? I don't know. Actually, maybe like political science. You are a more politically outspoken person now, and Mm. I want to get to that in a minute. Mm. But before we go there, I want to cover a little more of your history and your background. Yeah. So Blurred Lines, Mm -hmm. 2013. Yes. That was kind of when the world got to know you. It was. It was. I was living in New York and, you know, I had just seen this music video as sort of another job. Um, I was very used to just kind of working. I didn't really think of modeling as like a career. It was a great way to make money. That was how I saw it. And um, I was living in New York working as a model. And I remember someone like knowing my name and I was so confused. I thought that it was someone I knew personally. They called out to you on the street. Yes. And I was on the phone with my mom and she was like, who's that? And I was like, I don't know. And then they wanted a picture. That was sort of the first moment that I was like, oh, wow, this is really kind of changed. This is changing my life a little bit. And what did you think when the controversy started around that video? Um, I wasn't surprised. I think that, um, you know, I I obviously had not heard the song before I got on set. The director and the DP were women and actually are both still in my life. The DP who shot the video actually shoots all the time for Anna Murata. She's an incredible young female photographer. And the director, Diane Martel, is a really brilliant woman who um, understood exactly what she was doing. So I didn't, I felt very like comfortable with the sort of things that maybe some people deemed controversial. I understood what the idea was and I liked it. <laughs> you liked it? Yeah. What did fun. you like about it? I liked that these women in this video were depicted as not taking themselves too seriously, not taking these men at all seriously, and that there was a lot of humor behind it. It wasn't about being sexy in a video. It was about having fun and women sort of embracing their, their bodies. So who is Emily Ratajkowski? Who is she? Um, Well, uh, she's pretty sassy, I would say. Um, uh, I think she really represents confidence. I think that the brand is about women being multifaceted, about sexiness, fun, friends, um, maybe a little like European feeling. Yeah. Were you always confident? It's a journey every day, (laughs) as you know. Um, Confidence is something that I was definitely lucky to have. I was never someone who was afraid to, you know, do public speaking or anything like that. Certainly, like, I think that one mistake people make is thinking that it's an easy sort of just natural thing that comes to certain people. I think confidence, especially for women, is something that you have to work for. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And especially around body image and areas like that. Were you always... And this is a weird question. I would never ask any person this question except for somebody like you with your Instagram Mm -hmm. account. Were you always comfortable in your own skin? Yeah. I mean, I think that I was one of those kids who, you know, I grew up around sort of um, children of the 60s who were very comfortable with the idea of bodies not always being about sex and like the puritanical sort of ideas we have around nudity 
were not really in my household. My dad is an artist. Like, there were nude sketches around the house. My mom, when we would go to Europe in the summer, would be topless on the beach. And it never felt weird or uncomfortable to me. I think for me what happened was when I did hit puberty, there was this sort of moment where I was like, oh, now people are uncomfortable with me. And how do I handle that? Um, So... That was sort of my journey was being like, okay, why are people now judging me because my body is different and makes them feel a different way? And I developed really young. So that was, I was like 12 years old and like had, you know, D cut boobs and all that. And it was a very strange transition to not even really know what sex was, but be looked at like you're a sex object. And especially coming from a kid who had never even, that hadn't occurred to me as a, as a, a problem. So how did you internalize that? That had to be a lot. It was hard. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, I felt really judged and I don't think that I always liked myself. I think that it was, you know, I thought that, oh, no one's going to take me seriously, even at the age of 12. And I'm talking about like teachers and people that I admired. And also you don't, no one likes to be the person making people feel uncomfortable. Um, but I had a really good mom who basically said to me, that's their problem and not yours. And, um, I think I took that message to heart. (laughs) How do you think about it now? Maybe a young 12 year old is looking at your Instagram Mm -hmm. account and trying to emulate that, but they don't really understand at this point what sex is in the same way that you didn't. Yeah. I mean, I think that you know, body positivity and sex positivity are really closely related. And I think that girls need to have the opportunity to make mistakes. So there's things that I wore when I was 12 that now I'm like, wow, if I saw a 12-year-old in that, that'd be pretty crazy. But it was my way of sort of exploring and pushing boundaries. And I think that by trying to hinder girls' expression or like self-discovery, Um, it's sort of actually anti-woman because we want girls to be able to have the space to do that. Even if sometimes it might be a little weird and uncomfortable, that's the culture that we live in. What do you say to the young woman who's looking at your pictures, the pictures of other Mm -hmm. beautiful women, Mm -hmm. either on Instagram or in magazines or wherever it is, who feels bad about themselves? I mean, I think that you need to realize one thing, that Instagram is not real. And that's something that is very hard to realize. I mean, the internet was not a thing when I was 12 years old. I mean, it was just sort of starting. I I think MySpace came out when I was in maybe a freshman in high school. So it wasn't a part of my childhood. And I think about it a lot as someone who is in my late 20s looking at younger girls and thinking about if I have a daughter, how do I want them to sort of understand the concept of Instagram. Like, I want it to be something that they can use as a tool of self-expression while also realizing that that is just not real life. Look, those people are never going to feel the same way that real people in your life that you're spending time with on a day-to-day basis are. So not feeling good about yourself, it's like trust in the process and just know that you are the most beautiful thing and you are so strong and beyond all of those sort of comments and that feedback, you have to find something inside of yourself and not externally look for the feedback. I grapple with this issue about Instagram not being real all the time. I mean, I'm posting on Instagram as well. Mm -hmm. A lot of people in my profession are using Instagram, um, not with the kind of followers that you have, but we're using it as well to share our work. Yeah. And I think it is a little bit of a struggle, Mm -hmm. what you said about it not being real. Yeah. There's that 
what's happening behind the scenes, and then there's what we put forward as our front-facing image. How do you think through that? Like, have you ever thought, you know what, I I would like to be more honest, or mm-hmm. I would like to show this aspect of myself, but I can't because that's not the brand that I'm selling. Well, I think of Instagram as a magazine. That's basically what I always say to people is it's a curated magazine. So we all know that unfortunately magazines, people aren't reading them anymore. So think of Instagram as a sort of new editorial format. That being said, like, yeah, I share my dog and my husband, but there's limits to that because I want to also protect my husband and I want to protect my friends. So, you know, they shouldn't have to just because I have this public persona and this sort of window into my life have to be victim to all kinds of hate and opinions and whatever. That's sort of their choice. So I really grapple with it in the same way that you do, where I'm kind of like, okay, this is a curated magazine, but I do want to share more of my life, but I also want to protect the people that I love that maybe would show a different side of me. Um, So yeah, I kind of stick to the idea that it's a magazine and it's sort of like a photo book about me. And sometimes I'm going to give you more honest insight of what me and my husband do on a day-to-day, and sometimes I'm not, and that's my own personal boundary, and people really need to remember that that Instagram isn't real life, and that's, that's how also I will be a happy person. What ended up leading you to create your own company? It was sort of a long um, road with many different elements. When I was in third grade, I had a teacher who was getting married, and I was obsessed with designing her wedding dress, so... Definitely always been drawn to fashion. Did you design her wedding dress? I don't think she ended up going with one of my sketches, which I'm sure (laughs) weren't great. No, I was always interested in fashion and, like, loved designing and obviously having an art background, you know, like, had sort of this connection and then being able to work with so many amazing designers and photographers and and then brands. um, It sort of felt like a natural evolution for me. Also, I think, you know, doing a couple licensing jobs deals where they, they're able to use, accompany a brand is able to use my name and I design something um, and seeing sort of like, wow, they are able to really use my name and my image in a way that's super beneficial to their brand. Why shouldn't I do that myself? You're the reason they're selling their product. Yeah. And I was kind of like, I also, you know, it's a it's a really strange time. Like we were talking about 2013 to now. It used to be you hire a model because of their look. Um, and now you, you hire them because of their, their brand, their, their image. Yeah, but also the way that they've curated their own image because they have the ability to do so. So when you look at top models like Kendall and Gigi, like it's not just because of how they look it's all, or even their reach. It's also how they're branding themselves. So I realized like, oh, maybe I'm not bad at this and I should do it myself. So curating your brand. Yeah. It's such a weird concept it is. because yeah. we're all walking our lives mm-hmm. and doing that. Mm-hmm. But when you have, what is it, 24 million yeah. almost Instagram <laughs> followers, yeah. this is something you're thinking a lot about. Yeah, it is and it isn't. I think that it's really key to keep it instinctual. And that's something that I've tried to kind of bring to Enamorata, which can drive like my business partner and some of my friends like insane who work with the company because they're looking at it going, well, how do you explain this? What are the words you put to it? And that sort of come after the branding, which when you I work with a company, for example, they start with sort of like, what are the big adjectives that we stand for? What are the messages we want to convey? What's this image? And I kind of work the other way, which is like, who is this girl? 
and what are the images around it? And then I find the sort of words and the adjectives. And that's been sort of a funny thing. But I think that's how a lot of the world responds. At least our customers respond to not sort of um, prepackaged ideas. They respond to sort of like something really personal. The business, how do you gauge its success? I mean, it's crazy successful. Um, my, I mean, I, it's really hard to say that because I'm one of those people who's like, well, we, we need to make this deadline and we need to do this. And I'm, I have so much growth in mind for it. But I'm lucky enough to work with one of my best friends who's my business partner. And she worked in fashion for 10 years. And she is really great at sort of reminding me that these numbers, this growth, they're cuckoo compared to brands that she worked for for 10 years that have established brands. Um, It's really fun because it's a completely new world. Um, We, you know, something's not selling. I find a way to wear it or share it on someone else and that item sells. Wow. So that kind of being able to free flow like that, that's just such a new territory. Um, and, you know, people discovering us and the sort of community we're building, it's a very different type of branding than anything that people have done before. You post things and they sell out within yeah. minutes. Yeah. <laughs> it's wild. It's really crazy. Um, and, you know, so much of it is about how it's presented and how authentic it feels. Like, I used to kind of be one of those people who's a, who didn't really believe in a long caption, but it's like, well, I kind of want people to know the story behind how I came up with this concept to, you know, match these button-up shirts with the bikinis. And it literally came from wearing my husband's shirts. So I talked about that, you know, and that's the kind of thing that I think um, my customer really relates to and is excited by. It's so weird that we live in a world where you can say, I used to be the kind of person that didn't believe in a long caption. Yeah, I know. And it now, 2019, all yeah. of a sudden, mm-hmm. long captions. But it's also, it speaks to this idea, first of all, about the 24-7 nature of everything. Yeah. And the fact that when you are your brand, mm-hmm. you can make choices and change your mind at any point in time. Yeah. You can literally change course and decide this is the new direction I want to go in. Yeah, I feel so um, powerful in that sense. When I look at models of the past, you know, they didn't have an opportunity to curate their image. It was all through other people. It was putting their image, their voice into someone else's words and through someone else's lens. And it was never them being able to say, no, this is the way that I want to be seen. So I think that that's a really powerful thing. And I I do think that there are a lot of negative things that come with social media. But for me, as a woman in this moment, I feel very, very blessed. How do your followers break down? Mostly Um, male, female? It's a little bit more towards the male side. It's actually I think people are surprised how many women follow me. And um, my 16 to 25-year-old female following is larger than my male following at that age. And that's amazing to me. Those are your customers. Yeah, they are. I mean, we also have like a really good gap between 25 to 34, which is really cool. Um, There's nothing that means more to me than having like a 17-year-old girl come up to me and say, I really get what you're all about. And it's really helped me with my confidence and, you know, kind of telling the man to, you know, screw themselves. And I love that. That makes me so happy. Is that your brand of feminism, telling the man to go? I think that it's a little bit like get off my back as a woman. Like, let me have the space to make choices and don't judge me for my choices. Have you made any choices along the way that you would take back? Um, no, 
I don't think so. I think that, um, you know, every wrong turn has informed the next right turn. And um, that's just true in business and life. I think that it's really hard to say like, oh, I'd go back and change this because I don't think I would have learned that lesson. So you've been very politically outspoken. You and Amy Schumer Mm -hmm. uh, went to Washington to protest the Brett Kavanaugh nomination Mm -hmm. to the Supreme Court. You were a supporter of Bernie Sanders. And you also came to the defense of Melania Trump at one point. I did. How do you choose where you're going to speak out? Well, that's one thing that I think, I mean, the Melania tweet that I, I, you know, was defending her, that happened right after Trump was elected. Brett Kavanaugh was last year. For me, it's about my, what I believe in. Um, And when you really know what you believe in, you can feel yourself get angry about something and that's when you need to say something. Um, So I've also defended Emma Watson, right? You know, or about you know, people were criticizing her for talking about feminism and having a sexy picture of her in Vanity Fair, I think it was. But no one talked about that one, right? But, like, that's the kind of thing that feels consistent with my messaging, so. Will you be involved in 2020 at all? Do you have plans to support a candidate? I am. I'm really, um, like, I think so many people interested in defeating Trump. So for me, it's about getting behind the person that I think will win. Um, But, you know, Politically speaking, who I align with probably the most is Bernie Sanders. What is it about Bernie Sanders? Um, I think that, you know, our country, rightfully so, so many people feel very alienated with the political system and the political powers that be. And I think that's why Trump was elected. And I even think that was sort of why Obama was elected. And I think that's why I don't support Joe Biden and why I think Hillary Clinton lost. Um, establishment politicians don't really speak to people. And I, I think that's that's fair. I think there's real reasons why they don't. And I think that um, the voters can see that. And I think Bernie Sanders is very authentic and very specific. And sort of all the ideas that we used to have around politicians as far as what they should look like, what they should sound like, have gone out the window. And I'm a little sick of seeing the DNC prop those people up because I don't think that Americans respond to people like that. You mean like the old guard versus Mm -hmm. the new guard? Yeah. I'm sure there's going to be people who hear Bernie Sanders from you and say, but Emily, why not support one of the women who might be in the race, Elizabeth Warren or Mm -hmm. Kamala Harris? I actually love Kamala Harris. Um, I I love Elizabeth Warren, too. Their politics are interesting. I tend to feel that they can float a little too middle to the road. Um, I think that, uh, you know, for me, I'm really interested in someone who, who has radical ideas that they're not afraid to speak on. And that's not to say that Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren don't, but I do think that they have a record of sort of playing the political system in a way that is not as disruptive as Bernie has been. I would love to see what Kamala does in the next five to 10 years. I would actually think she would be an incredible running mate for Bernie. But um, Bernie Sanders is sort of, I think, also the most electable at this point. I like that you call him Bernie by his first name. So you guys know each other. I've met him. I do. It's not a name. I'm not like calling him up for breakfast. But. So day one, <laughs> yeah. Bernie Sanders gets elected. Uh-huh. What's the most important thing he does on day one? Oh, God, I actually don't. I do not have an answer for that. Um, you know, I think that what's so interesting about his um, politics is that he believes that a lot of the issues around race and gender will be solved with economical solutions. And I, I agree with him. So um, I hope that he really 
works on um, universal health care and a universal minimum minimum wage. I think those two things are super important. When it comes to feminism, mm-hmm. what is your brand of feminism? Uh, I think we talked about six yeah. demand. No, um, yeah. <laughs> uh, I think it's really what feminism is about for everyone, which is choice. Um, so to me, it's about not limiting options or saying someone is a bad feminist or not uh, saying that they there's a limited sort of idea that women need to perform under in order to be furthering feminism. It's just about the ability to choose to be whatever kind of woman you want to be, to live whatever kind of life you want to be, to dress however you want, whether it be in a burqa or a bikini. Hear more from Emily after a word from our sponsor. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. Let's talk about the business a little bit yeah. more and what you'd like to see. Mm-hmm. In 10 years, mm-hmm. what do you want it to look like? Uh, I'd like it to be giant. <laughs> do you want it to be a public company? Um, yeah. I mean, I think that I'd like it to grow to the potential that it can be. I'm not sure that I need it to be public, but I, I'd still also like to be a part of it. I don't think there will ever be a part where I won't be interested in, in sort of having a voice in the company. And you want to be the CEO it. for the yes. long run? Uh, yeah, I'd like to have some part in it. That's that's what I will say. Right yeah. now, you're doing all of it. I'm doing all of it. Literally all of it. Yeah, I'm a control freak. I can't help it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> What's the hardest part? Production is really difficult um, and keeping up with sort of where we, as we are growing so quickly, we're so lucky to have that. But being able to have a company that keeps our standards, you know, we, we most of our, our product is made in L.A. and California, um, making sure that's ethically made and that it's also good quality, but also keeping our prices reasonable. Um, that's tricky. Yeah, I'm sure you've learned a lot about business yes, that you because you didn't really have a background prior, but you got background. to see a lot. I did. I I would say that I um, am shocked now how much I did not know because, you know, I had, I mean, my parents have no background in business. That This is a totally foreign concept to them. Really, no one in my family, most people either work in academia or, um, or lawyers, whatever. So I just, I didn't have that sort of knowledge. Um, so, yeah, I saw how companies grow, but I didn't totally understand how it worked. And now I've the really... The difficult choices that the, you so have to make. So many difficult choices. So many different difficult choices that you worry will be, you know, detrimental. I found that, like, you know, trusting your gut and, you know, I always say this, but, like, as a woman, I think, and without this sort of, you know, I didn't have a dad who had sold a company at, whatever, 53 years old, Um my dad was teaching art, you know? Um, I think that as women in general, we're sort of taught to, like, question ourselves and, like, oh, well, I don't know about that. Like, someone else tell me. And I've realized more and more that people are just sort of faking it till they make it. And just start faking it and be open to learning and asking questions, and you'll make it. 
What's the biggest question you've had to figure out the answer to? How to grow a company in a, in a healthy way. Um, so not go fast. What are the important things about it? Like, what are the things that make us special? Um, and that's been a journey, but I, I think that we're really getting there. So we started the company in 2017, and for the first year, we only had six swimsuits, and we um, were always in the green. We were always making money, which was pretty amazing. And um, manufacturing in the U.S. Correct. Yeah. Well, some of it at that point was in Bali, um, but yes. But LA, now it's entirely in LA. Yes, correct. So, and how important to you is it to manufacture things here in America? It's really important to me. Um, you know, I I think that we have a long way to go in the fashion industry, and there's certain things that, you know, we're trying to build more of an environmentally sustainable product, all that stuff. But right now, our priority is really keeping it in the U.S. Keeping it in the U.S., mm-hmm. potentially going public. Well, yes. Someday. One day. But you've financed this entirely with your own money. I have, yes. Um, so up until now, it's been everything. I mean, it's it's sort of taking care of itself now, but we obviously want to grow. So I think that there will be steps very soon to sort of allow us to take that next, um, next level. It's an interesting question because a lot of female businesses, yeah. female-run businesses, mm-hmm. struggle in those early days yes. to get financing. Yes. Um, and I've talked to a lot of female entrepreneurs. Only 2% of venture capital funding goes to women. They oftentimes in pitch meetings are pitching to men who aren't necessarily familiar with their product. Right. Have you ever pitched your product to someone who didn't get it? Um, I haven't had to pitch it to people who don't get it. And I also think that literally in the last year, things have changed. You have companies like Glossier, you have companies like Pat McGrath Labs, Kylie Jenner Lip Gloss. Like you cannot argue with those numbers. You can't argue with how that growth is. And, you know, I understand enough to know that the things that make us special are the things that Kathy Ireland was doing 20 years ago, right? She was able to say, okay, I'm going to start a business where we literally just sell socks for a year because I just want people to to start to trust and and to acquire a bunch of customers. So that's basically what we did, right? We had six suits. We were like, these are great bathing suits. They come in an array of prints, an array of colors. You will enjoy them. Now, join us on this journey while we kind of start to make lingerie and ready to wear um, and and all the while building this customer base for a very low cost because Emrata already has people sort of just looking at the brand. How do you think about the longevity of the brand? Because it's so much about you. It is and it isn't. I mean, our customer acquisition is about me, um, but the brand itself is not really that much about me. Um, the suits really stand on their own, and that's why I didn't call it Emirata Inc. You know, um, it's it's an Emirata because I want people to just love the brand, even if they don't know I'm connected to it at all. So, so do you see a future where the people in your clothing mm-hmm. are not you? The people. Oh, I already them? do it. I mean, I have a lot of different models, a lot of different body types. We had Judith Light modeling our bodysuits. It's really kind of already moving that way. But, you know, yeah, the way that we're growing is by using this platform that, that is Emirata. So, um, you know, for right now, but as people follow in Emirata, which is, you know, at 460,000 followers, hopefully five very soon, um, you know, they're not looking to just see me. They want to relate to the brand. They want to see other girls in it. Like I said, it's a sort of community. 
you had an interesting role alongside Amy Schumer and I yeah. Feel Pretty. And yeah. I think it's interesting. She she has this response to you, basically, that she's surprised that you have insecurities. Yes. Yes. Yeah, that's sort of one of the great scenes in the movie. I think I was really happy when she called me to do that because we've been friends. And I think that, you know, she's seen sort of my messaging and my ideas. And in a lot of ways, we come at feminism at the same in the same way, just from sort of different perspectives, because our lives have been different. Um, And, uh, you know, this moment of sort of like, well, you can't possibly be insecure. It's it's crazy. It's so wrong. Um, Every human being is insecure. What is your biggest insecurity? Oh, man, I don't know. Um, I think that it changes regularly, right? Like, just like anyone, it's sort of like a thing depending on what you're around. The sad thing about insecurity is it's it's what sort of tends to keep us back. So whatever that thing is, I remind myself that that's just self-doubt. Is there anything you do to try and focus and center yourself? Therapy. It's great. <laughs> Therapy. Um, and, you know, sharing with people that you love and you're close with and trust, like, the ideas and the feelings that you're having are is really, really helpful. We live in a super stressful time. And I, I think actually this goes back to what we were talking about earlier about social media. A lot of people sort of project like they're sharing about their about their lives and what they're going through on social media. But it's invaluable to, you know, talk to your parents or talk to your best friend or talk to your husband, your boyfriend or girlfriend and and share with them and, and trust them with that and let you know, them weigh in on that because those are the people who really love you. And so they're not just someone who's random and maybe they're kind of lonely and trying to find a way. These are people who really care about you and they will catch you when when you need that. How do you balance that with the millions of fans that you have in terms of sort of having that core foundation and coming back to that, Mm -hmm. but acknowledging that there are millions of people who are liking your photos every single day? I think that the numbers get really abstract for me um, when I like when we talk about 23 million people. I don't even know what a thousand people look like in a room, you know. Um, so conceptualizing of that many people is is actually really difficult. Um, I think I try to think about larger concepts that I believe in and also have fun as a woman. Like I think that's something that we forget to do is just like enjoy ourselves and celebrate ourselves, however that might be for you. It's very personal. For me, that's sort of, I try to focus on that uh, as well as kind of stick to these ideas that I really believe in. And that's how I find that balance. I definitely get the impression that in spite of the fact that you have all of these followers, Mm -hmm. you're actually a kind of private person in some ways. Yeah, I am. I would say that's true. Like, you have this private life that Mm -hmm. you're not going to share with the camera, that you protect, and you actively choose to do that. Yeah, I mean, I think it just feels natural because so much um, of—I do—I think that I I actually, in the last couple years, have shared more about my personal life. Like, I will share a picture of me and my husband and my dog. I will, you know— take a picture of whatever. But there are certain things that, you know, they, I want to protect them. They're, they're close to me. So, yeah. Um, but I almost feel like in some weird way, an Amrata is an expression of the opposite, which is just like, let me share like this vision I sort of have um, for, for women and this kind of visual uh, thing, which feels very open. Is there anything you've been approached to do where you've said absolutely not? Yes, all the time. <laughs> Actually, another important thing for women, saying no. 
the power of saying no and having faith in the long term, that's so hard to do. I'm sure you've done it. You know, especially as you're sort of starting to grow, you're like, oh my God, that's an incredible opportunity. Will there ever be another one? But if it doesn't feel right, just say no and have faith. Life is both long and short. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. The days are long, but the decades are short. Yeah, exactly. So I think that it's really important, the power of saying no and, and what that can mean later for you. What's the hardest lesson you've had to learn along the way? Patience. I'm really impatient. Um, actually, that's something my husband's really helped with. Um, I think that I'm one of those people who really wants to sort of see results right away and building a brand and just even in life, like there's things are constantly in flux and, and being able to work with that is something that I've, I've gotten better at recently. I ask everybody this question. Mm. What is the worst advice you've received along the way? Oh, God, so much bad advice. That's a great question. Um, man, I'm trying to remember. I feel like I've, like, tuned it out, to be honest. I'm trying to think of the thing that I've heard. I mean, I might. we might have to go back to this. Are you the kind of person, then, that tunes out advice? Um, no, I definitely listen to people because I think that you can learn something about the world, even if it's bad advice. Um So, you know, having, I guess, I guess people just basically telling me not to trust myself was probably in in a million different ways saying to you, like, listen, really, you know, you don't know about this thing. Listen to other people. And it's hard because I'm a student. I like to learn things. I'm, I think that being smart is only about being curious and like listening to people. So I never like to be like, oh, well, I know it all because I don't feel that way. But there is a really important distinction between that and and being op- being like sort of protective of of valuing yourself and what you do know and that's that has been the journey for me in my 20s especially thank you so much thank you so much I really appreciate you really joining great. us yeah, yeah. Okay, it is the end of the interview, and that means it's time for our No Limits Entrepreneur of the Week, where we feature one of you, our No Limits listeners, who's building something of your own. And this week's entrepreneur is Megan Fitzgerald. She's an adjunct professor at Columbia University's Mailman School of Public Health and a managing partner of L1 Health, also the founder and chair of K2 Health Ventures. Plus, she has a book coming out this January. Take a listen. Greetings from Naples, Florida. I'm Megan Fitzgerald. I'm a public health professor at Columbia's Mailman School of Public Health. I'm a private equity partner at Letter One, and I'm an author of an upcoming book called Ascending Davos, which highlights my unconventional career from working in an emergency room to ascending to a boardroom, along with a few stops along the way uh, in corporate America. So the toughest lesson I've had to learn in my career is by far failure is not a fatal diagnosis, even though it feels that way at the time. I had started my career in healthcare and then pivoted into the business side of healthcare. And one of the early jobs I got was working at a biotech startup. Very exciting, working on oncology until the clinical compound failed its phase three trial and the company went bankrupt. It was deeply personal. I felt really bad about the patients that were not gonna get this drug. And if I was honest, I was embarrassed. 
and I had really wished that the experience could just vanish from my resume, which as you know, is not possible in this day and age. But what I learned is that failure was very much part of the process. And today in private equity, where we put companies together, grow companies, we get to help select the management team and the board. And we look for people who have failed, who have a high adversity quotient and know how to rebound from failure. So it's actually something I needed to learn, but was very, very difficult at the time. I love that message. Failure is not a fatal diagnosis. Thank you for sharing your toughest lesson, Megan. I wish you continued success in your career. And remember, listeners, you can head over to my Instagram at Rebecca Jarvis to hear more from Megan. Also, if you or someone you know should be featured here on No Limits as the Entrepreneur of the Week, you can send me those nominations at no limits with RJ Podcast at gmail.com. Feel free to send me career questions, ideas, thoughts, all of it. I love to hear from you. And finally, a shout out to the team here who helps make this happen each and every week. My producer, Taylor Dunn, editor, Brittany Martinez, research assistant, Lane Wynn. Thanks to ABC Audio. And we'll see all of you here next week.